listening to the Taming Hinges podcast. Conversations about self-awareness and mental health. We talk about anything and everything on the podcast. Real experiences, real life. Come get triggered. Welcome to another episode of the Taming Hindrances podcast. As always, my name's Phil. I'm the host and creator of the podcast. And today's episode is about life. And not just life in the old school meaning of, you know, however you want to define it. Life as a topic. Life as a broad spectrum idea. And I usually go fairly in-depth with things, but this one, not only am I going to be in-depth, but we're going to be broad at the same time. I'm not talking about how to, you know, I mean, we will get into some, maybe some advice things about how to live life, and but life as a topic. And I want to start with, how do you define life? What is life to you? What is your definition of life? As always, I, you know, like to get into definitions of things because I think when we understand a word, we get into the language structure and language is the way individuals can communicate with each other and we can find commonality inside of language, even if we're looking at other languages and translation and those types of things. But specifically, what is life? Life is defined as a noun. So it, it's a, it's a thing. It's, you know, life is life and we can, we can do the action of living and, you know, that's the verbiage to, to live. Um, and, you know, life as a noun has plurals. We, we have lives. So, you know, we have our life, we have others' lives, those types of things. It's, it's, it's a big word. It's also a big topic because when we talk about self-awareness and we talk about mental health, we have to talk about how someone defines life, how someone lives, why they live. Remember, I don't like why questions, but we're using it here. And when I use it, pay attention. Why they live, why life is important or not important or isn't important to that person or what life is in general. How do we go about doing it? What does it really mean? These big giant questions, you know, one of my favorite books of all well, books, multiple books of all time is a book series, I should call it, uh, is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Fantastic read. If you've never read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's not for everybody. I get that. Um, it's science fiction-y, so if you're not into science fiction stuff. But it, it's comical, and it's... The way Douglas Adams writes makes the mundane entertaining. So... Not only does he write fantastical things and comes up with these amazing ideas about individuals traveling across the galaxy, but he brings the mundane into it and makes those mundane items of, you know, grabbing a coffee and going to work into something fantastical. And I think that is a topic or a, a methodology a lot of people can relate to is, you know, that... I want to see the mundane become fantastical. Isn't that all fiction writing? We want the mundane to be fantastical, all fantasy writing, science fiction, these types of things. So Douglas Adams does a great job of that. And he also covers the topic of life. And part of the story, um, not really ruining anything here, but there is this search for 
the answer to life, the universe, and everything? That's the question, right? That's the ultimate question. It's what is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? And I won't give you the answer. Well, I guess I kind of have to, but um, the answer that's given, and I'm apologize that I'm ruining some of this, so don't pay attention to the next three seconds if you don't want the answer ruined because it's in the books, uh, is a number. I'm not going to give you the number, but it's a number. And the reason behind that is because that question is too ridiculous. It's too crazy. It's, it's, a, it's an unfathomable question, but it is the question, right? What is the answer to life? Well, I'm going to try to cover that today, and I'm going to fail ultimately because that's the point. The point is to fail at it. And as I talk about a lot, repetition is the mother of all skill and failure is its father. The world likes, or the universe likes to balance things because that's a rule, right? That's one of the rules of the universal laws, if you want to call them that, is that everything is seeking balance. It has to be. Just without balance, things can't exist. Everything's two sides of the same coin. Triality known as duality. And inside of that, we have the fact that universe does balance unbalanced. It uses asymmetry. So in order to converse about life, to try to define it, we must fail. We must get it wrong in order to understand what it really is. That's that's part of the, the understanding of, or the creation of knowing what life is. So we'll start with how I usually start. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, because I like how they lay out their website essentially and we're going to we're going to start with their full definitions. Now Merriam-Webster's usually has like essential meanings in the beginning um, which are more like agreed upon more socio socially recognized uh, definitions. I usually just skip those. I mean it's good to read them, but I usually skip over them. So let's get into the full definition of life. Merriam-Webster's dictionary the first one they use is the quality that distinguishes a vital and functional being from a dead body. Fair. That's, that's definitely fair. Um, there's a little bit to unpack there. We'll come back in a second. Second part of that, a principle or force that is considered to underlie the distinctive quality of animate beings. Okay, well, that's interesting. So we've talked about two things so far. We've talked about dead bodies or inanimate objects, and then we've talked about animate beings. So in order for there to be life, something must have been animate and then inanimate. Okay, fair, because, you know, some things are just inanimate to begin with, technically. Um, you know, we like to say that rocks and these things are inanimate objects, but technically they're moving at a very slow, slow, slow pace. Light itself is animate. Light is always moving. We don't consider it alive, but life is if defined by inanimate versus animate and the, the period of t having a period of time in between. Technically, you know, light would follow that uh, follow that definition. So they get a little bit more specific. An organismic state characterized by capacity for metabolism. Ah, okay. So we must have a metabolic function. And a metabolic function is to take something, break it down, and create energy from it. Well, light kind of does that. So light's still on the spectrum, if you ask me, but... I'll digress and we'll move on a little bit. The sequence of physical and mental experiences that make up the existence of an individual. Interesting. Okay. All right. So now we're talking about individuals and we're talking about mental states and we're talking about experiences, be them physical or, you know, mental. And we have a little bit, another piece here. 
one or more aspects of the process of living. Okay, so now life is a de the definition of life has now become in if we go down these tiers here, the experience of the actions that make up animation to become then non-animate. So the period of animation when there was none to when there is none again and the experiences therein, be them physical or mental, in an object or being that metabolizes and, and we talked about the distinct quality of um, being animate. So, okay, interesting. Um, that covers animals, covers us, it covers, you know, not that we're not animals, but it covers a lot of these things. That's, that's worth looking at. Farther down here, I find another interesting piece, and this is going to kind of be our little bit of a jumping off point here. And one of the definitions of Merriam-Webster's Dictionary for Life is spiritual existence transcending physical death. Spiritual existence transcending physical death. If that's life, huh. Interesting. So we're talking about a specific period of time or a measurement thereof. And it can transcend. It can be beyond. So we can have multiple lives if we're looking at, if I'm looking at this correctly, we, this is saying that we can have multiple lives. Well, that's interesting. So not only can we have an animate life, we can have a, a non-animate life. We can have a, a spiritual life. We can have a mental life. We can have a body life. We, we've talked about this before and we've talked about it when we talk about the origins of alchemy and we talk about the origins of medicine, specifically when we talk about Paracelsus, uh, von Hohenheim and his uh, alchemical writings, but also in his practice of medicine where he, he practiced medicine, not just on the physical body, but on the mental and the spiritual body as well. That there was these three pieces that made up one's full health, um, structure, that it wasn't just a physical form, it wasn't just a mental form, it wasn't just a spiritual form. You had to have all three in order to have a, a full outlook on someone's health. Well, that's kind of an interesting idea. And, and I know I talk about alchemy a lot. So let's talk about something that I don't really get into very often, which is Taoism. Because I've talked about, you know, the world of religious beliefs and, and philosophy. And I've spoken about how I don't believe in organized religions, but I, I like to look at religious belief structures because it gives us an idea of the understanding of different cultural aspects, different people in general or time periods of life uh, in humanity's history, at least. Well, one of those, and one that's directly correlated to alchemy, because some might argue that the idea of Taoism is the beginnings of alchemy and that spread from there. But Taoism is um, one of the original philosophical teachings of China and the Chinese people. Now, Taoism has taken on multiple different versions and it did so in this weird transmutation, transcendental just this translation period of something known as the Tao Te Ching. Now the Tao Te Ching is what would be considered the original canonical writing of Taoism. Well, what is Taoism? Taoism is the belief structure of being in tune with or being 
being working with or to work inside of the natural order. And that the Tao, Tao the word, its best translation to the English language is way or path or road or it's a, the method of being in balance, if you will, with the natural order, the universe, the world itself, down to the trees, to the grass, to the, the people around us, the animals, being in natural, a balance of natural order, being on a path thereof. That's what Taoism is. And I'm oversimplifying, I know, but that's essentially would be the Taoist way, would be to be in balance with the natural order. That is to be inside the Tao or to be on the Tao. It's often touted that, you know, Taoism is this, this way of being. It's not so much a way of being, in my personal opinion, more so than a way of anything. Taoism is the way of. It's, 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 it's an adventure. It's, it's an action. To be a Taoist is to be of action, even when we're meditating and being not of action and we're being still and part of the process. It's that blending of being part of nature, being part of the process. That to me is true Taoism. From what I've studied and what I know of Taoism and its roots to alchemical processes, the, to be one with nature is Tao. And Tao is specific to a person. And Taoism gives birth to a lot of different ways of. Uh, one of those is what I studied, or one of the things I studied, which is, is Kung Fu, which is really what we call Gong Fu. And Gong Fu is my way. It's my way of action, my way of understanding, my way of doing things. Specifically, it can be my way of martial practice, because I'm a martialist, not a martial artist, I'm a martialist. And my gong fu is the understanding of war. That's how I became a martialist. As I studied not just the physical interactions of how to fight, but war as a as a idea, as a a principal action. It's a and it's all a mental state. That's that's how I understand my gong fu is a mental practice. It's not so much physical, and it it started very physical, but it very quickly leaned away from the physical action into a more mental practice, and. In, as I understand war, all war is is a, is a mental simulation. We simulate war before we practice war. We simulate drinking before we practice drinking. Everyone has a way of going about taking a shower, brushing their teeth, getting ready for a, their day, the way they drive. You have a way of everything. That is Taoism, is to have a way. And my gong fu is the way in which I, I do those things. It's my fu, it's my action. Now, Again, back to the Tao Te Ching. The Tao Te Ching was um, an original canonical writing. And there's been many translations. And the problem with that is the translation from specifically ancient Chinese, because uh, Chinese has had different iterations um, from the very beginning. It's a, it's a very, I don't want to call it a flowy language, because that would be a kind of talking about the, flang, the language itself. It has its ebbs and flow, like, Chinese, the language, one, there's oh, a ton of different dialects, even dialects we've lost, and it changes and it incorporates and it moves and it flows. Chinese has never been just, you know, Mandarin or Cantonese or it has all of these different aspects and you might get, you know, a uh, few Xing and like 
the dialect itself change and the way people speak change and the, it, yeah, it's a very, that's why I call it a flowy language. So even just talking about something that was written hundreds of years ago, the Tao Te Ching is an ancient version of Chinese. So that makes it hard to translate. And specifically the way it was written originally was kind of like most alchemical writings. It was written to make you think. It was written for you to have to decipher something from it, which is why I call Taming Hindrances Think, Taming Hindrances and Neurokinetics. I learned a long time ago in my martial studies, specifically when studying the Tao Te Ching, it's better to make someone contemplate something and come up with their own realizations and their, their own understanding or their own translation than it is to give it to them. Because when you give someone th someone that idea, you give them you give them a, a hologram, you give them a a copy of yourself, and that's not teaching someone to be their own fu or have their own gong fu or to have their own dao. That's teaching them your kung fu and your dao. So it's it's not appropriate, and that's a lot of why alchemical writings or even writings of antiquity, specifically in philosophy and those types of things, or with the mystery schools, as I've talked about before, write cryptically. Even so much to go and have a cryptic way or a, a, a cipher to figure out what they were talking about. And that's where the idea of, you know, symbolism and that stuff comes from. It's, yes, it's this mystery kind of feeling and it's to make people interested but there is an aspect to that of the way of teaching and the way of teaching alchemy is to show not to teach. It's to lead, not to give. It's, you know, in alchemy, it might be said that, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but a better question is, you know, and you can't make a drink. The better question to ask is, was the horse thirsty? What was the point of leading it to the water? It's that idea. That's more of an alchemical teaching standpoint. And we can see that when we look at Taoism and again, it's like the Chinese language, it kind of evolved and moved and flowed and it starts very philosophical. The original Tao Te Ching is a philosophical idea and philosophy in Taoism or the Taoist philosophy is speculative. That's the idea is what is the natural order? How do I balance myself with it? How am I part of it? What is life? It's that questioning. It's a constant questioning. And though it, so it's it's speculative and it's specifically designed that a Taoist might follow a master or many masters over the course of their lives, but there is no there's no following, if that makes sense. Like the truest Taoists are known as the Taoist immortals. And the Taoist immortals specifically had what's commonly referred to as a vice or a, a specific identity, as I've, speak, I've spoken about identity before, that became their immortality. So we have the Taoist immortals. One of those was, um, I believe it was a lute or a flute. I can't remember which one it is. But um, they were an instrument player. They were a musician. And so their immortality was based on the idea that they continued to practice and play that every day. And if they didn't, they would die. And if they lost their specific flute, they would lose their immortality and they, would, they could die. One was a drinker. 
One was a singer. One, there was these specific, you know, we call them vices, but they're really like, they were things the individual must do every day to be one of the Taoist immortals. And the Taoist immortals were spoken of having like magical powers. You know, they could call the rain. They could, they could uh, move a, 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 a river. They could, there was all these different anecdotal stories of the things these Taoist immortals could do. And one of those ideas was that the Taoist immortals did not follow. They found their own Tao, their own way, their own balance with nature, the way they went about their gong fu. So in Taoism, we wrap up this idea of not following, finding our own path, right? Well, like that understanding, it has many different interpretations. And so the Tao Te Ching went through a period of different interpretations. And it's important because when we talk about life, it follows the, you know, if we're talking about life as what is life, the way Taoism went about its evolution, if you want to call it that, follows kind of how humanity has evolved ways of defining what is life? First, we had philosophy. We had the Taoism as a philosophical idea, and that's it's that's speculative. We're speculating about all these different facets of life and what the natural order is, and how do I balance myself with it, and what is natural, what's not natural, chaos, destruction, creation, order, all of these things, as I've talked about before with the primordials. And then it takes on a religious aspect, and that's where we get esoteric Taoism. That's where the magic where the Taoist immortals start to enter the equation. Before this, there was no, in philosophical Taoism, there was no immortal. That wasn't part of the process. There was no process of being a Taoist. It was one's own way or defining one's own way. So it was a study of mental health, study of mental, you know, faculties, study of self-awareness, as I've talked about before. Most philosophy, the history thereof, is a study of, of self-awareness. What is the mind? What does it do? This translation piece, right? Well, as most things, and when it comes to great writings, it gets turned into a religion and we get esoteric Taoism. And then after that, we get the alchemical Taoism, which some people speak against that Taoism took on this alchemical nature because that was trying to figure out the esoteric scientifically, give it method, give it Tao. We created something else. We, we, we created this esoteric Taoism. This, remember, ESO, ESO, looking inward, inward faculties. And we turned it into this religious practice. We needed a balance to that. The balance to that was the alchemical, which actually turned into the exoteric, exo, EXO, remember, to outside the body practices. And together, they are an amalgamation of what the philosophical speculative side of Taoism started as, as the Tao Te Ching. And the Tao Te Ching is written to become a translation. You translate the Tao Te Ching when you read it, and there's been oh, plenty of different translations out there. Translating it gives you an understanding of what your Tao is, because it talks about all the faculties of life. It talks about right living, talks about how to interact with things, talks about how to interact with oneself, talks about self-awareness, talks about a lot of different things. And it does so in like 84 um, 
chapters, essentially. I think it's 84. I mean, don't quote me on that. But that alchemical piece of Taoism often gets linked to what's called the I Ching. And the I Ching is, or I Jing, however you want to pronounce it, um, it's the uh, tossing of the sticks. It has to do with the trigrams, and it's a way of divining. It's one of the original methods of divining. And divining is to seek divinity. And divinity, the original way of thinking of a divinity, is knowing the future. At the same time, knowing the past. It's the all-knowing. Divinity is all-knowing. So I Ching is the, you would toss sticks and you would then look up the different, um, I can never remember how many trigrams, 84, 96, I can't remember, I apologize. Uh, but there's a certain amount of, they call them the trigrams, and it's a way of reading, you have uh, four lines, four on the top and four on the bottom. And you can have um, break, 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 which is no line. So you can have four lines, and if I did the math, I could tell you how many actual possibilities there are, but four lines on top, four lines on the bottom, and each line has three sections. So figure that out and you get however many actual processes it is. But you would read the sticks or they could you do them with coins. You would toss three coins, toss three coins, toss three coins. And, you know, you get heads on or you know, essentially on or off. Each dash, one, two, three, is on or off. So you can have blank, blank, dash, blank, dash, blank, all solid, which is a solid line. And then you'd have do that four times, gives you the top four. Do it another four times, gives you the bottom four. And you would look up what that meant. And each of those had a specific meaning. I don't have any of those readily available for you, but the I Ching is a fascinating study in the divination processes because it's one of the original divinations and divinations is to divine and divine is all knowing. And the funny thing about divinity is we judge it based on its accuracy, but we define it by the past. All divinity is defined by the past, and all divinity, though, is predictions of the future. So we judge our divinity on the past. It has to pass. It has to happen in order to judge if it was correct or not. But all of it is predictions of the future. It's a weird way to go about it, but that's that's the true definition of divining or to define divinity to me um, is we define divinity by the past, but it's all predictions of the future. So it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Well, that I Ching is, again, one of the original divinity things. And to throw some other ones out there that we've seen in historical reference, we have tarot, you know, the cards, um, tarot. We have uh, pendulum, the Rosicrucian, um, they use the pendulum, which is, uh, it'll come to me. But we have tarot, we have uh, Norse tradition, we have the casting of the runes, um, all sorts of different. There's always, There's been plenty of different mediums or methods for divining. We have water dousing, that's one. You know, you take the two metal rods or use to use sticks to find uh, water sources, Um Again, all sorts of ones. The the pendulum one, which I don't... Sorry, I apologize. I said I was going to figure it out, but I can't remember the exact name for it. We have all these these different methods for divining. 
And divining then translates back to religion. So we have this Taoism wave function of philosophical Taoism, speculative ideas, religious Taoism, esoteric ideas, alchemical Taoism, the I Ching, which then brings us back into religious Taoism again, and then back into philosophical Taoism in the end. It's, and this is kind of a, a picture, if you will, of what humanity has done to define life. We've constantly been doing it. It's the reason religions exist. Religions are ways of defining life. They're ways of giving us even, I mean, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll digress a bit and I'll say philosophy too and religion and just general opinion. All of these different things are ways of defining how or why or the right way to live life. But we don't often look at how we define life itself. And life itself is complicated because we as an individual must decide what it is to us. We have to decide what is life, not just as the grand idea, but also as the very small idea because life can be very big or very small. And we must define life as a faculty, as an idea to get a better understanding of are we living? What happens when we stop living? Is that death? What happens after death? Is there another life? And we must have a better understanding of life because then we can actually create needs, wants. We can create pieces of enjoyment. We can create emotion. If we have an understanding of life, then we can have an understanding of why we have emotional reactions. We can start to define reality, right? Things that I've talked about in the beginning of this podcast, the first 14 episodes, remember they, they're two culmination points, episode seven and episode four, uh, 14. We have episode seven is reality and episode uh, 14 is truth. And um, I'm sorry, episode 14 is identity. So we have reality and identity. And these are points of culmination of the things that I talk about inside of those and one of the great things to do with those is then to apply an idea of or a definition of life. And this is where we get the idea of things like compassion, sympathy, because life is a shared idea. We can have life. It doesn't have to involve anyone else. But in order to define life, there must be death. There must be an end to it. To live is to die. To die is to have lived. And we have to have some sort of reference for what happens after death because if it's not a finality, then well, we need a better definition of life, right? Because if death's not a final piece, if it's just the death of the animus, the death of the body, and then there's a spiritual life after this, or or if there's reincarnation and then life is going to happen again, then don't we have a, well, we have a big broad life, right? We have a longer life. We just have periods of rest and periods of living, or what we call living. So we have life, death, life, death. Oh, then it's a wave function again. 
See, so it, it gets very complicated, so we must have a better understanding of what life is. And specifically, what is human life? What is the definition of humanity? That's what we converse about when we talk about life. Because we can say multiple things have life. They have lived. Dog lives. A cat lives. Those types of things. But we have to understand what life is so we can define that. Because without that big, broad definition, we can't come up with the specific definition of what a human life is. What is humanity's life? What is humanity as a whole? And we can look at evolution all we want, we can look at religion all we want, and we can look at philosophy all we want, and we can look at everything in between there. We can look at what our teachers taught us and what our parents taught us and what our friends think about it. But we have to have our own definition of life. Remember, I always talk about how we shouldn't give things, we shouldn't give power to other people in the respect of we shouldn't give someone else our definition of life. We should never allow someone else to define what life is to us because it's not theirs to define. It's your life. So we should not give away our life. By giving away definition, we give that power to someone else. This is the medieval talk of magic. I know some people might think I'm crazy, but I talk about magic as a real subject because the real root to the ideas of magic are that of the alchemical processes and that of language itself, communication. Original magic was the communication of the fundamental beings of life. And one of the statements is to know the true name of something. This is what Solomon talks about in the book, The Keys of Solomon, to have the true name of a demon would give you the power over that demon, right? That's one of the, if you read The Keys of Solomon, The Lesser Keys of Solomon, actually, that's one of the fundamental ideas of, of calling upon demons if you want to get into that realm of things. And I know I'm losing a bunch of people talking about this, but this is part of our history. And part of our history is this weird, awesome, amazing thing known as magic. My definition of magic, specifically, magic happens when you forget that it doesn't. That's how, you, that's how you do true magic. True magic happens when you forget magic doesn't. That's the truest understanding of magic. Magic happens when you forget it doesn't. So, with that understanding in mind, let's look at that specific piece of language when it comes to magic to have something's true name, to have a fundamental description for, we can create magic. A curse or a hex was a specific verbiage, syntax, or a way of saying something that would then be cast. And to cast something is to expel it from the mind. That was mental faculty of magic, was if I was going to cast a spell... I needed to take it from the mental space and bring it into the materium or send it to the spiritual. Remember, there's always these three pieces, spiritual, mind, and body. Mind is the translation point. And that translation point was where we would cast spells from. And to cast them into the materium, there was plenty of different ways to go about that. I could create a rune and a specific, you know, circular structure to go in and I could create um, magic circles all of these different, uh, there was chants, you could chant a, you know, a spell that was, 
ways to bring it out of the mind into the materium. There's different ways to do that. One of those ways was language. And when we talked about knowing something's true name, typically this is in the medieval period of magic where we would use Latin or one of the root, um, what's considered an original language. Solomon used Sanskrit. And when we talk about these magic pieces, we talk about that idea of language. So that's why I make it very specific about we don't want to give away our definitions of things. Because uh, in the magician's mind, the warlock's mind, the witch's mind, the um, there's all sorts of different names you can use. But in the practicers, in the magic practicer's mind, if someone had your true name, they had power over you. Your true name was your identity. That's why I talked about identity. I'm not saying I'm bringing magic into this and I'm not trying to convert anybody into Wiccans or pagans or any of those things. I'm talking about the ways we used to think about it. And, I, you know, take, add the woo in, take the woo out. Remember, no connotation from me. But in the magic practitioner's mind, there was this idea of true name. True name is identity. It was also definition. That's why I say you should never give, never give your definition of anything to anyone. Don't give them your choices. Don't give them your perspective. Don't let them define your perspective. Don't let them define your language, your relationships, your emotions. They're all yours. And once you give them away to someone, it's very hard to get them back. And this is what I would say is a principal idea of self-awareness. I've been looking for these principal ideas for a very long time, and I think I'm comfortable in saying that a principle of self-awareness is that these things are yours. So you must have that at all times. These are yours. And the funny thing is, that was a magical practice. To be a magic practitioner, you must be comfortable with the idea that this is yours. You don't give it to anyone else. You don't give your spells away. You don't give your hexes or chants away. You might teach them to others if you found them with, to be within your coven or your circle or you know, those or be your apprentice, someone very close inside. In Taoism, we would call it being inside the family or inside the house. That's what we practice in Kung Fu or Kung Fu. We would practice a inside and outside system. To be truly inside a system is to be inside the house, to be a part of the family. That was, you know, in Kung Fu, we had the, the martial family. Or you could be an outsider. And there was a bunch of different levels to all these things. But if you were inside the family, you got all the secrets. You were trusted. You may have taken a blood oath to get there. Well, in the magician's world, there was blood oaths and other oaths and all of these different things. But there was this idea. I'm, I know, I'm, remember, repetition is the mother of all skill. Failure is its father. The repetition here is the understanding of the principal idea of self-awareness that I'm presenting is it's yours can't give these things away. You can allow them to be influenced. That's okay. As long as you're translating those influences into your own way of understanding it, but they are yours and they must remain yours because once you give them away, you're no longer self, you are group. And that's a separate identity. You may have group identities, but to identify the self, to be the self is to be yours. You must own yourself. This is actually what we're talking about, or at least when I talk about it, when we talk about the animus, the, the material body, the physical flesh, it's, it's yours. We talk about it as yours, but there's an understanding that it's also not. 
it is a group of organisms and bacteria and cells and amino acids and all these different things like a like uh anecdotally kind of like um a coral reef to be you know if you want to talk about this this whole system of an ecology that lives in the purpose of living and to do the the things that must be done to continue to do that so the body lives right so we're talking about life the body's a living thing well, okay, that metabolism part we talked about when we were talking about the definitions, certainly. But there's community to living. There's these things interacting with themselves to create this idea of life. There's multiplication. There's division. There's all of these ideas that we find in alchemy are kind of things that happen within the animus. So we have this idea of living. Well, we also have control over the body, right? We can we can take part of the nervous system. We can control it. That's the mind. So the mind is also living. The consciousness itself is living. And some might say that there's a spiritual part to that too, and that's the soul. And the soul is also doing some living. It's doing its own translations because that's what the mind's doing in between the two, between the things we can't see, the spiritual, and the things we can see, the materium, and the body. The mind's doing this translation piece. It's got a tough time. <laughs> it's, that's a lot to be doing. So if life is a way of doing things, uh, there's a natural order, there's universal laws, there's methods and systems and mysteries and perspective and change and choice and the primevals and the primordials. Uh, there's education to be had. There's belief to have. There's all these things. What is life? What is your life? What do you want your life to be? Oh, there's, there, okay, well, that's, there's future to that. There's divinity to that, right? So I think this is where we get that ebb and flow. And I talked about how Taoism, I use Taoism for the example of how things change and flow and become different and then come back. Well, the philosophical standpoint on life is to live. And philosophy is trying to be, define that at all times. It's speculative. So you can have your own philosophy. I have mine, certainly. And then we have religions. Well, religions are organizations of ideas on how to live and why we should do so. Okay, so religions are essentially created to define what life is and why we should do it. Interesting. And then we have systems. One of those may be alchemical ideas. The idea that Taoism turned into the alchemical system or went into alchemical Taoism is really to look at the process where science happens, education happens, a collective understanding happens. Because that's truly what science is. Science is a method, it's a process of understanding. And we can do this in all sorts of different ways. One of the ways we come up with understanding is language. That's why I harp on the definition side of things a lot because it's a, it's a collective understanding without others or references thereof we can't have our own right two sides of the same coin duality life and death 
they're not a duality. I know, a little confusing. But life and death are, are measurement systems, right? Well, that's the coin. When I talk about duality, I talk about how it's actually triality, that there's the coin and there's the, each side of the coin. What is the opposite side of life? It's not death. That's the measurement. Death is a measurement of the length of life. So it's not the opposite side of the coin. It is itself its own coin. So we have to come up with, well, there's living and not living. Life is the measurement. Death is the point of a new measure. It's the end point. So death is the coin of living and not living. Life is the coin of experience and no experience. Animation, metabolism, these are all action. So maybe a better way to put it would be life is the coin of action and no action. And that's why we have time. Time is just a measurement. So life and death are their own coins. They're their own triality. Because death in and of itself is its own measurement. We just don't know a lot about it. We've created other, or we've created a bunch of speculative ideas that have become religions and philosophies and systems of their own to define what happens after this animate life stops, when this body dies. Well, that's, that's a key piece to life, right? The idea of life as a humanity, the life of humans, or to have your life, is your body. That's part of it. That's a big defining point of what we talk about when we talk about life. It's the body. So, you know, we should take care of our bodies and we should take care of our minds and take care of the spiritual side of things because they all make up the real topic here, health. So when I talk about mental health and I talk about life, they're kind of the same thing. Your life is the definitive idea or the measurement of your mental health. Experiences you've had, the struggles you've gone through, your tribulations, your trials, all of these things. That's, that's life. So what is life? It's a measurement. It's just a measurement. And we get to define it. We get to understand it. We get to do... One specific thing that I've mentioned a couple of times in this podcast so far, this episode, we get to translate. Because in my definition of life, and I'm not saying you need to incorporate this into your own way, but my Tao, my understanding, my Gong Fu of life, is life is a translation. That's all it is. Life is just a translation. And the best part about it is we get to choose how we translate things. Imagine if at any point in time you could take any other language and you get to translate it into yours and have an understanding. It just makes sense. Well, that's life. Life is understanding. It's translation. We translate all of these things we do not understand. I don't speak dog. I don't speak cat very well, but I translate and I understand and I experience. I don't speak tree, but I can experience being around one. I don't speak rain, but I know it translates to a good feeling in me. I like 
I like rainy weather. I like when it rains. I like how soft the rain makes things. I don't speak art, but I can get some feelings from it, translate it. I can at least think about the experience of the artist. That's how I experience art, actually, is to try to think about the artist because I'm just more rationally minded that way. I don't speak music, but I translate it to different feelings and structure. Life is a translation. We're constantly translating between all sorts of different things into where we experience things, and that's in the mind. That is our mental health. So our mental health relies upon translation, and that translation is the definition I have for what life really is. So we must decide for ourselves, individually, not just collectively, what life is. Is it precious? Is it necessary? Is it worth it? And this is really where, well, it's where mental health can go awry when we don't have answers to these questions. And so the topic of depression, as I've spoken about before, the taking the connotation away from it, depression is the way we translate. Life is the translation. Depression is the way in which we interact with the world around us, be it other people, nature, Taoism, right? The natural order. That's what depression is. It's taking all of those experiences and placing them in the mind, depressing them into the mind to be translated. And we translate them through this understanding of we have, which is known as our depression. And then we get a translation. We get a book. We get a record all of our experiences and interactions. That's life. Life is the translation. It's the after. It's the measurement. It's the, it's the divinity. It's divine. Life, in, by my definition of it, is divine. We define divinity by the past, which is all predictions of the future. That's, how, that's the way I define divinity or origin we can pick whatever method we want to use. Philosophical, the speculative method, the esoteric, the religious methods, the exoteric, the alchemical methods, Taoism, Buddhism, Zen or Chan, Shinto, spiritual Buddhism, Christianity, the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Jainism, Scientology, whatever you want to I don't know if I'd choose that one, but no offense to those, but look at the methods and the systems. Anyway, those it doesn't matter. You can pick whatever method you want, but again, you should never give that the power of that method to someone else. You should never let them choose what's right for you. That's not appropriate because it's yours. Your depression is yours. Hold on to it. Don't give it away to someone else. Don't let someone fucking control your depression. It's not theirs to control. It's yours to control. You are the translator. You're the mind. You've been translating constantly. All those experiences with your senses, smell, touch, taste, sight, hearing. These are translations. They're yours to do because they're from your body. We get this amazing translation thing. It's known as our bodies. 
That's the animus. Animus mundi, spirited mundi. I don't remember the uh, mind one, but we get a body to do all these amazing translations with, and they gave us senses. Then that makes up our reality of the material, the, the world we live in. That's the translation of depression. To be depressed is to experience, to translate. Depression is an experience of life. We use it every day, constantly. Without it, we can't experience anything. If we can't get it into our mind, we can't experience. Because you're a mind. You are a consciousness. That consciousness luckily got control of a pretty good set of ways of experiencing all the senses. What we don't always have control over is that body itself. Things, you know, go awry or happen or it's a, it's a hard thing to keep healthy. But oddly enough, we have been given full control over the mind. Now I understand there are things in the body that might create a hard mental space. You know, chemical imbalances, constant, you know, injury of constant pain and suffering, those types of things. Keeping that in mind, though, when I say depression is necessary for this, that's where the control thereof comes from. When we learn that life, again, is the translation. Depression is the way we translate. Death is just a different measuring point. It's a different experience. And so, life in the grand scale, what is life? Is it me, human living? Is it dog? Is it cat? Is it turtle, tree, grass, air, rain? What is nature? Is nature alive? That's the grand scale. On the small scale, it's me. It's my depression. It's how I... Think about sushi, my experience. Do I want to drink? Do I not want to drink? Do I, you know, what I don't think a lot of people understand because our, our methodology for learning when it comes to experience has been corrupted in some ways, known as social media, is that the shared experiences are, a, there's a lot. A lot of people go home and as soon as the pajama pants or the basketball shorts or the, you know, the comfy clothing goes on, that's it. Call it done for the day. We're not going back out. You can call me. I'm going to ignore it. You can text me. Don't ignore it. Not going back out. I'm in my comfy clothing and comfy clothing equals the couch or bed or we're done. And that's okay. Everyone wants to be like, oh, well, you know, I gotta, I gotta do all these things. And you know, I'm just so busy all the time. No, you're not. You're not. You choose to be. That's different. Or you choose to show that as, you know, what's really going on. From 
the teenage girl who rolls out of bed in the morning and tries to put on some air so she can take an amazing Instagram photo or a Twitter post or whatever so that her friends that she's going to go see at school are like, oh, I just wake up this way, but it took me three hours to get this way to the, you know, 50-year-old person taking a picture of a sweet deal that they found at the store to the, you know, yogi out practicing in the meadow to the billionaire taking a picture with their jet. These are just BS bad translations. They don't translate. There's no communication here. They're an air. They're an, they're a, they're a bad experience. They're a, a bad methodology. They're a bad way, a bad Tao. It's not natural. It's not natural order. The natural order is I'm feeling down. Maybe I should eat one of my comfort meals. Cool. Let's do that. Hey, I've eaten my comfort meal three times this week. Maybe I should like I don't know, get to the gym or, you know, go do an activity or something else instead of just the comfort meal. It's that balance because the, the natural order of things is always seeking balance. It's going to do it asymmetrically though. The methodology in which we translate is depression. The translation is life. Life is translation and it's an ongoing translation and it can be changed and it can be upgraded and new experiences can be added. New methodologies can be used, but they must remain our own. So when I say life is translation, life is a book you're writing. You're the author. You get to decide what language is used, what experiences are talked about, what emotions are expressed, you, what perspective, what way you want to write it, first person, second person, third person. But you're the author of the book. It's your translation. It's your life. You get to write it. When you die, you publish it. We don't often think about what we're writing until it's published. We get to see finished books all the time. We don't often take the time to look at the unfinished books. The researcher trying to figure out, you know, that new book they're writing. The, the steps and the processes that go into all these things. Because they don't just get written. There's method. There's depression. There's translation. Translation of life is it's tough. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. If you listen to all the old philosophical writings and all the old true religious beliefs, it's never supposed to be easy. Because if it was easy, it could never be hard. If it's never hard, there's nothing to learn from it. Because if it's easy, there's nothing to learn. It's easy not to learn anything. It's hard to learn something. It's easy not to experience anything. It's hard to experience something. But it can't be hard all the time because then it wouldn't be in balance. So there must be that asymmetrical balance. It's part of life. This is what the mystery schools have been trying to figure out. This is what religions have been trying to figure out. This is what all exoteric, all esoteric, metaphysics, philosophy, science, all of these things are trying to figure out. What is life? Well, it's the translation. All of those other things are just methods to do translation. You 
get to choose which method you choose for your life. My methods used to be, and still in some ways are, very selfish, very self-serving. But there's nothing actually wrong with that. I don't do harm to others. In fact, I took the hippocampus oath, so doing harm to others would be against that. I have done harm to others. I don't necessarily regret it, but I think upon it. These are all just different ways of translation, different translation pieces. My gung fu is my way. Your gung fu gets to be your way. Your Tao, your method, your way, your path is yours. And in some ways it's ours too, because there, you know, there has to be some sort of balance there. So I think the biggest downfall I can see is again, going back to how we allow other people to take away our translation, to give us theirs. This is how they see things. And then instead of us translating and writing our own stories, we write compilation pieces and we put in other translations that don't necessarily agree, don't aren't necessarily in our own benefit. So I would challenge you when you, when you define life, you think about life, is it your life? Maybe that's a better question to ask yourself. Is this your life? Or are you allowing other people to define it for you? Did somebody else get the dictionary and the thesaurus out and start writing words on a piece of paper and they became your life? Or did you get the chance or did you take the chance to burn that fucking paper and start writing your own? Because it's your life. You get to write it. So is it your life? When I talk about life, I'd rather ask you that. Is it your life? How do you define it? How do you live it? How would you like to live it? What would you like to change? Remember, change is just a correlation of choices. So you get to make those choices. I often take things from the end and then work them backwards. I've done that my entire life. It's just a weird way I go about things. When I write these episodes, you know, when I get a general idea of what I'm going to talk about in a podcast episode, I come from the end point and then I refigure it out. So when I came up with this episode to give you kind of some idea into how my mind works, I wrote the end piece and the end piece is life is translation. That was the end piece. And then I kind of, figured out how to get to that point. My entire life, I've been suicidal. My end point has always been death, my seeking of, my want for death. But a final death, a finalization of the end of consciousness, the soul, and all the other shit that goes into this contemplation of what life is, what being is, spiritual or animate or not. A final idea. And so I'm trying to rewrite that trying to figure out how that works. Your mind might work differently. I don't know, but that's how my mind works. So I came at this from this perspective of life is translation. It's also how I've come up with this entire idea of the beginning of uh, all of the episodes to this point of this podcast is I know the end. We all know the end. 
it's no longer living. That's the end of life, is to no longer be living. So if we know the end, we can define the rest of it. And then it can get super personal and we can start cutting out all the bullshit. We can get rid of the social media. We don't really need it. I don't need to define myself by someone else's actions, someone else's opinion. I'm happy to share them and happy to be a part of that. That's called community. But community is not life. It's part of life. It's not life. I can control my health a little bit better. I can focus on my health. That's living. That's part of life is health. And then there's three pieces to that. Remember, there's quote-unquote spiritual, mental, and physical. And I speak about the mental health side of things a lot because that's the translation point. This is where this idea of translation comes from. And then, you know, I wrote about all these things, but I started from the, the, the end and brought it forward. I talked about education, belief, language, relationships, emotions, and how that makes up reality. Well, reality is the end. That's the experience. That's our definition, reality. And then I talked about choice and change and the correlation and how that makes up perspective and these mystery schools and these systems that we can get ourselves involved into, the mystery schools being the, the ways and methodologies of thinking about the universal laws that are around us and how these things make up truth and how our truth can define who we are and give us our identity. Well, that identity is the translation. That's the way we translate, in my eyes, is our depression. It's uniquely who you are. Depression is the one thing that is you, that no one else can be. Anybody can be bald and have a beard. It's possible. Anybody can be pretty. Anybody can be intelligent. Anybody can be... There's a plethora of abilities and ideas and definitions out there that anybody can try to be. That's community. What they can't be is your depression, your translation, the way you translate, because that's your life. The way you go about translating things is your life. So a better way to look at this social media aspect of things, to look at community and all of those things is to have this understanding of your life because it's yours. And then you can share it and you can show it off because it's yours to do that with if you choose. Or you could be like me, you'd be a little bit more introverted and you can kind of keep it to yourself. Maybe keep it secretive if you want. It's yours to do what you want. That's what makes it uniquely yours. And then once you realize that, once you have that understanding, the other parts don't matter. It doesn't matter what people think about you. It doesn't matter how you present yourself. So what? You walked out of the house with pajama pants on and a shitty t-shirt. You were just going down to the store to get food, to come home, to just sit and be you. Oh, well, if someone judges you on that, fuck them. That's, that's the honest answer. Because you know what? Everybody else is doing that. They just don't want to leave their house. So they DoorDash or they Grubhub, you know, or they, they call their significant other and tell them to get milk on the way home because they didn't want to put on clothing to go outside today. That's totally okay. Can't go to work like that. That's not acceptable because that's a, that's an agreed upon idea. There's a workplace and work must be done. 
This is what we talk about in the be of service. When I talk, you know, when I talk of being of service, there's a methodology that goes into that. It's the same thing for religions. It's just an agreed upon methodology of how to act or how to think, ways to live and why to do so. Well, that's life. So you get to define it. You get to choose. You want to be part of the Abrahamic religions? Maybe not. You want to be a magician. You want to be a Wiccan, a pagan. You get to choose any of these things because it's your life. You get to write it. No one else has to agree to it. What's not okay is heinous crime, obviously, because that's not a proper way of being in the natural order. That's Taoism. Taoism's easy answer to, should I kill a bunch of people? Is no, asshole. That's not a natural way of being. That's why Taoists don't wage war, but they're really good at it. Taoists don't start wars. They finish them. Part of my martial teaching, part of my martial experience, was to actually be in the study of Taoism in some ways. And one of the things you learn about the Taoists, they know how to end a war because Taoism is looking for the natural order. And if you take the natural order out of balance, their methodology of living tells them they must balance it. And there is no extreme, too extreme, to bring back balance. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but that's the way they go about it. The difference is the community is generally always close to balance. And when it gets a little bit off, they just bring it a little back. To find balance, if the teeter-totter falls to one side or the other, balance is not flinging it back the other way. That's how we go about modern society nowadays. We're constantly in this argument structure of a war. It's a war. We're constantly waging war. Humanity loves waging war. On the small front, on the big front, doesn't matter. We love waging war. That's why I don't agree with humanity. I don't think we need to exist. The necessity for humanity, mm, I don't know. That's arguable. We can get into that to another, another day. But we are constantly waging these wars of translation. That's all. War is just a, someone else wants to define your life. That's war. They are now waging war upon you. That's why I say you must hold it, keep it to yourself. It's yours to define. Your depression is the only unique piece of you no one else can have. They can't take it away from you. They can't change it. They have no effect over it. When was the last time you sat down with someone who was very depressed? And I mean like the clinical definition of depression and tried to talk them out of it. You can't because you're trying to fundamentally change that person. Stop trying to do that. Help them. Yes, absolutely. Stop trying to change them. That's not the right method. They do not respond to that. As someone who's been there, we don't respond very well to that. And you don't either. The people who, you know, are, are out there and they think like, oh, I can't believe people can be depressed. I don't know how that's possible. They themselves have been depressed. The differentiation is the ratio of their happiness. They're getting more jubilation experiences, more of a dopamine rush than they are the non. That's where like the clinical idea of depression, and we talk about the psychological evidence and the dopamine, serotonin, cortisol, norepinephrine balance structures, the chemical processes, the nervous system, all these different things. 
yes, there's a whole clinical side to mental health. Absolutely. Never going to argue that. And it's super important. But I really work in the world of the everyday conversation. Of the people who seem a little bit morbid to some or seem down or distant, quote unquote, depressed, melancholy. Stop trying to change those people. Understand you can't understand them. That's part of it. Some of them maybe just want to be included or to not feel stuck anymore, which is why I talk about life the way I talk about life. I'm not here to solve depression. I'm not here to fix anyone. I'm not, I can't do that. That's not, that's not my way. It's not my gung fu. It's not, it's not how I operate. Typically, I just try to get people to think about things. So you need to think about your life. How you define it? How are you translating things? Have you given someone else power over it? What is life to you? How do you want to live it? What does it mean? Does it matter? If life doesn't matter to you, you're in a great place. Oh, you're in a great place. Because you get to choose either how to make it matter or if it doesn't matter, then you get to just kind of live it and not worry about all the BS in between. No, you don't get to be a shitty person. That's not allowed because that's not in balance. Remember, natural order. Everything's always seeking balance. has to be done through asymmetry. So no, you don't get to be a shitty person. That's not, that's not okay. But you definitely get to take some time for yourself and eat your favorite meal or put on the, you know, cozy pants Go good cozy on the couch. Maybe buy, you know, get the kitty. Be like, hey, kitty, or hey, dog, what's up? Or the goldfish, tap it on the glass. Don't tap on the glass. Wave hi to the goldfish. You get to, you know, you get to do those things. Because that's how you define your life. And, it, you know, if you want to be one of those go-getters out there that just goes fucking crazy and just hits it every day as hard as they can, just does everything they can to get ahead, yeah, you're probably going to get ahead. Don't let it make you miserable because if you're doing that, you're out of balance. Remember, it's all about this balance structure and you got to define your life to do that. And you have to understand what life is in order to define that because that's the translation. Life is all of those different translations you're writing on a regular basis. And if you don't like what you're writing, stop writing that. Write something different. You have to write something. That's the progression of time. It's a record of action which is another way of kind of defining life. So if you have to be writing something, shouldn't you write what you want to write? And yeah, this gets into the philosophical debates of what is humanity as a whole? Are they good or are they bad? I would say they're kind of useless. We're kind of useless. We don't have a specific use case. That's a problem. We might want to try to figure that out a little bit better because war is not a good one. Like I said, we're always waging war. We're always in a fucking war of, you should think about things this way. You should buy this. Everyone has an opinion. That's, that's what I talk about when I talk about divinity. Everyone has an opinion. 
That's part of divining. Everyone has an opinion that's based on another opinion that's based on another opinion. No one's opinions are their own. That's the problem with humanity right now is that all of these opinions are based on someone else's opinion. True translation, a true epic, a true telling of life, your life, is your opinion. You gotta, you gotta hold on to it. And you gotta create it. So you have to commit to creating your opinion of what life is. Then you can live your life. And it doesn't have to be amazing. It can be melancholy if you want it to be melancholy. It can be full of cats if you want it to be full of cats. It can be full of macaroni and cheese. Full of whatever you want. Make sure there's balance. That's one of the rules of the essay. It has to be balance. But you get to write it. And it's interesting when we create the understanding of translation. Because like I said, I worked backwards from the end here. To finish this up, life is translation. And everything has a language. Everything around you, everyone, everything, being, things we can't see, things that are side real outside the planet, everything has a language. And no one is a master translator. No one can translate everything. So we get to decide what we want to be good at translating. My argument here is that if life is translation, then the process of living is to learn how to translate and decide what you want to be good at translating. Maybe you want to be mediocre at translating a whole ton of stuff because you don't want to focus on one thing. That's fine. Or maybe you want to be really good at translating one or two things. That's fine too. But the idea that life is translation is another way of saying we must translate. It took me a really long time and I don't know if everyone gets there. But I had to learn that, yes, I have to translate. I have to. I really don't get a choice in that idea. That's a principle level of existence, which I define as different than life, is that we must translate. We have to. It's, it's a necessity. There's a need to translate. So th that being true, then, one must decide what they'd want to translate. And the option of suicide and the option of death is not a translation. It's a different existence. So you best fucking have everything you want translated, translated before you, you transition to that. That's my way of looking at it. Do of it with what you will. But if a person is contemplating the idea of suicide, as I've talked about in other parts and pieces, there's reasons. Everyone has reasons. Don't ever think there's no reasons. I know it's tough. 
if someone, if you've experienced that, I have, you know, people get mad about it happening. I get all that. It's two different perspectives. It's two different, it's depression. Remember, you can't, you just didn't understand the translation. But in order for death to happen out of want for decision to have death, all things must have been translated that should have been translated. This is why war is not okay. All war is not okay. Shooting war, not okay. Instagram war, not okay. Twitter war, not okay. Trying to demean someone's humanity, not fucking okay anymore. Never was, never will be. Trying to force translations onto people, force ideology, force belief structures, force education, not okay. Never was, never will be. War is not okay. War is a mistranslation. You're not allowed to take someone else's translation away from them. So, if an individual is choosing to end the translation, choosing death, then my, my say to you is, you better be fucking done translating. Because there's a lot to translate. There's a lot to write down. There's a lot to figure out. Stop interacting with the war. Because it's ever present. Humanity's option is to go to war. It's what we chose to do. We keep choosing to do. That's not to say that discord isn't okay and conversation and debate isn't okay. Those are different things than war. War is when two or more perspectives choose to have irreconcilable translations that the way they translate are so vastly different that they cannot exist together. That's war. And we do it every day. Every day. Republicans, Democrats. New York pizza, Chicago pizza. <laughs> Sorry, sometimes I like to make light of things. Cats and dogs, those types of things. It's okay for there to be all these different things. But war itself is not okay. It's out of the natural order. So you must remove yourself from the war before you can decide that your translations are over. Because if you're in the war, you're fighting in that war. These aren't your translations. You're not writing anything down. You're hoping to take cliff notes to get the right answer on the test. That's never coming. So make sure your translation is yours. That you've thought about what you want to translate. If you want to be Translate a bunch of things, one thing, two things. And that what you publish in the end is to your standards. 
that it agrees with who you are, who you wanted to be, what you wanted to accomplish or see or do or feel. And also understand that all of the translation we do now in society doesn't really matter because it's all the translation that should after after the book is published. Because the defined idea of divinity, the way we define divinity, is by the past. And all of that is predictions of the future. Your life will be represented by the translation of others. So make sure you publish something that they can spend some time on. Because that's the truest version of humanity I can find. Is when we look at the experiences that have come before us so that we can understand the experiences that are possible for us to have. Because if there was no possibility, then there would be no life. There'd be no way of translation. There'd be nothing to translate. Remember, life is translation. You get to choose how you translate things. So go experience, translate, learn new different languages. Or don't. Just make sure you live. Because that makes you a scholar. That makes you a sage. And those are the wise. Those are the ones who come into fruition in any school in any mystery, in any religion, in any esoteric or exoteric process, in any philosophy. The wise are the ones who lived. Take care. Thanks for listening. Come check us out at taminghindrances.com for show notes, links, resources, and more. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or your preferred platform. If you leave us a spiffy review, we might just mention it on the show. But go be awesome. And just remember to breathe.